your cake online. How's it hanging, Cake Nation, and welcome back to the Chemistry Cake Online Podcast, where chatting about chemistry has never been sweeter. Chemistry Cake is online, and today airs the second episode of our Biochem Chem Bio season. We've got a really stellar guest for you today, folks. She received her bachelor's degree in chemistry with a minor in gender and sexuality studies from Rose College, received her master's degree in oceanography from the Scripps Institute of Oceanography, and is currently a PhD student in marine chemical biology at UC San Diego. I've also got to say that she is an incredible science communicator, and I really enjoy her content on TikTok and Instagram. So, folks, would you help me give a warm welcome to Kayla Wilson? Kayla, thank you so much for chatting with me today on the show. How have you been? Wow, thank you so much for that awesome introduction. I've been doing all right. We have started to go into lab a couple days a week, so that's been nice to break up the quarantine schedule. But yeah, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Well, that's good to hear. And how has Captain been? Uh, He's been loving the fact that I've been home a lot recently. Yeah. Would you mind telling the listeners at home who Captain is? Yeah, so Captain is the love of my life and also my dog. He is a 10-year-old Cocker Spaniel mix. He's a rescue. I got him in my first year of grad school. So we I've had him for a couple of years now, but he's just awesome. He's the best. I, I do love Captain. I um, For folks that have been listening to the podcast, um, we had Taylor Steele on the show earlier, and she often um has photos of captain and i just live for the captain content so if you're wondering where that's coming from folks that is where that's coming from so we're just diving right into the science so you previously mentioned that you study isoprenoids did i say that right yeah that's right that's perfect i honestly haven't the slightest idea what that is would you mind enlightening me Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I study a class of compounds known as isoprenoids, and those also include terpenes. You might be familiar with with terpenes. Terpenes are found in a lot of different things. They're pretty popular right now in the chemistry world because of sort of the legal cannabis industry. Mm -hmm. Cannabis contains a lot of terpenes. Most plants contain a lot of terpenes. So Mm -hmm. that is kind of like if you Google terpenes, the first thing that will come up is weed. So just be careful with that. But um, (laughs) yeah, so terpenes are made of, of of these little five carbon units called isoprenes. And that's where the isoprene of isoprenoid comes from. So any sort of isoprenoids or terpenes will have some multiple of five number of carbon. So 10, 15, 20, something like that. And I particularly study some terpenes that are found in marine sponges that I collect here in San Diego. So they're a pretty cool class of compounds, um, and I've really enjoyed studying them. Sponges. Yeah. And not cleaning sponges, folks, no. But sea sponges um, from the ocean. Yeah. Kayla, what are sea sponges? Oh, okay. So first of all, I just have to say that sea sponges are way cooler than anyone gives them credit for. Honestly, until I started studying them, I had no idea how incredible they are. Um, So first of all, sea sponges are old in lots of different ways. So sea sponges, (laughs) yeah. So sea sponges, they 
are thought to be one of the first animals to ever evolve on Earth. So first of all, they are an animal. They're not a plant. They don't move or animate like a lot of animals, but they are an animal. And um, they actually, some studies show that sponges were were predate the Cambrian explosion, which is when you know 90% of the animal life that we see on Earth uh, appeared, right? Um, so there's some evidence mm-hmm. that sponges were around, you know, 50 or 60 million years before any other animals. So that's really crazy. But they're also really old individually. Like we have some studies that show that certain deep sea sponges, individual sponges can live, you know, 11 to 15,000 years um, based on dating of their silica skeleton. Um, So sponges are really old creatures. Um, They're also home to a microbiome. I know microbiome is a um, sort of hot topic in in chemistry and biochemistry right now. And sponges are thought to be some of the earliest animals to ever adopt and um, sort of maintain a a microbiome. So sponges are awesome. I I would definitely recommend everyone give them (laughs) more credit because they're awesome. So I have two follow-up questions. The first is... Are sea sponges squishy? So that's a great question. Some of them are. So if you've ever bought like a sea sponge, like a dried sea sponge, like a beach shop or maybe like um, a sort of bath and body works or something like that, those are a type of sponges that are made out of sort of like a soft cartilaginous um, skeleton. But the majority of sea sponges actually have a hard skeleton that's made out of silica. So it's um, a biosilicate um, thing that each sponge actually makes very specialized uh, shapes of silica that helps us as scientists to identify the species of that sponge. So there are some um, sort of silica structures that are long and skinny like a needle. There are other ones that are spiky, sort of like a hedgehog. They kind of look like a hedgehog. There are others that look like crosses. Um, so they form all sorts of really cool, tiny silica structures. Um, and those, those silicious, I think that's how you say it, silicious sponges um, aren't very squishy at all. They're actually made of silica, which is glass. So why are they called sponges? That's a good question. Like where the name sponge comes from. Are they, are they filter feeders? Yes. Yes, they I- are. Perhaps that might be, I, I, I don't know. Perhaps that's my speculation, right? Because if they're filter feeders, it's just like they're absorbing quote unquote, like food from their environment, I suppose. I don't know. That's my speculation. Uh, yeah. Folks who study sponges, but like on the biological side, tweet at me why yeah. sponges are called sponges. That would be cool. Uh, yeah. That was my follow-up to the follow-up. Here's my second follow-up question. Are sponges like closely related to corals? Do you know? Um. So one would think that they are just based on the way they look in their environment, but they're actually pretty different. So corals are a lot more closely related to anemones, like they're part of the um, Nidera, Nidaria group. So those are named after animals that have stinging cells, nematocysts, and sponges mm. don't actually have that. So sponges are pretty different from corals, even though they have some similar features and live in similar environments. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So so here's the big ask. 
why do we care about sea sponges? And more specifically, why do you find them particularly interesting? That's a great question. So, I mean, I've made my argument that sea sponges are just interesting on their own. But the main reason that, you know, my work is funded is because sea sponges actually make drugs, like drugs that we use to treat viruses, that we use to treat cancers. Um, there are actually quite a few drugs that have come from the ocean and, and particularly from sea sponges. So I think there are 13 FDA approved drugs that have come from some sort of ocean organism and three of those have come from sponges. Um, and the main reason we think that sponges make these drugs is probably not because they're trying to, you know, stop human diseases, but because they don't have that many physical defenses, right? If they're just sitting on the bottom of the ocean and they can't, you know, use teeth or claws to attack a predator or they can't run away from a predator, their defense is going to be chemical weaponry, right? They've, mm -hmm. The reason they've been able to survive for millions of years is because they're really good at making these complex and powerful chemical defenses. Um, mm -hmm. And especially because they have this microbial community, we think that a lot of the biochemistry that we see in these sponges is a result of members of that microbiome chemically signaling to each other. Um, so yeah, sponges, their main form of communication really is chemistry. And we as scientists are able to harness that communication in order to treat human disease. So cool. Okay, so, so you had mentioned that three of the 18 FDA approved drugs came from sea sponges. What are those three pharmaceuticals? Yeah, that is a great question. So um, the first one that I know of is here. I have a list of them, actually. Oh, okay. So actually, the first FDA approved antiviral medication actually came from a sponge back in the 60s. So that is, well, actually, they're, they're two very similar molecules that were approved around the same time, but those would be um, Cytosar-U and Vera-A, also known as ERA-C and ERA-A. It's kind of confusing, but essentially, these are nucleosides that came from sponges and mimic DNA and interfere with you know, DNA polymerase, which is really important in viral replica replication. So these two molecules from these sponges um, were able to be turned into drugs that could be given to your entire body. So it was the first sort of systemic treatment of viral infections. And those are improved and approved by the FDA in the 60s and 70s. And then the other one is Halivin, which was approved in 2010. And it's a macrolide from a sponge that I believe is used to treat breast cancer. Yeah, yeah, it's a cancer drug. Whoa, that is so wild. Right? Okay, yeah. Okay, so okay. I and I, I and forgive me if I presuming incorrectly, but I presume that so you mentioned you study isoprenoids that came from sponges. Do you study like are these also pharmaceuticals and do you study them as a class or is there one particular isoprenoid that you study? Yeah. So isoprenoids do make up uh, there are a lot of bioactive isoprenoids that are used in human health. So 
Um, probably the most famous isoprenoid that actually came from an evergreen tree is, is Taxol. So it's an isoprenoid yeah. with some other sort of chemical motifs on there, but that's used to treat cancer. Um, and then also there are important molecules like beta carotene or mm -hmm. retinol. Those are also isoprenoids and those play, those aren't drugs, but they play an important role in human health. So isoprenoids can be drugs, but the, the ones that I study in sponges, I'm actually more interested in the enzymes that are used to produce those isoprenoids because isoprenoids are so interesting and are so valuable in so many different fields. It's really important that we have uh, a lot of different ways to make them, right? So right now we primarily get isoprenoids from, you know, extracting them directly from the source, from the plant or from um, chemical synthesis. But if you can find new enzymes in nature that can make different isoprenoids in different ways, then you can, you know, put those, those enzymes into some sort of a, you know, E. coli or a yeast, something that we're really good at working with in a lab and, and actually produce isoprenoids that way. So that's kind of the aspect. So it's not that the isoprenoids I study are drugs, but the thing that makes them could be used to make a drug. Interesting. So, and, you know, like I am somewhat familiar with isoprenoids now that you've described it. I just didn't know that that was the the classification of these molecules but from what i've been hearing um i i take it that you know isoprenoids are very versatile and pretty i don't want to i don't want to use the word ubiquitous but they're found in a lot of things like yeah. um i think one of the things i i don't know if limonene is is one i know that's a term it is yeah yeah it is uh-huh so are there, is there just one enzyme that is responsible for making these compounds? Or are there like several different kinds of enzymes? And which one do you study? Sure. So there are lots of different enzymes involved in making like, for instance, limonene. So let's talk about that one, because that smells really good. That's often found yes. in a lot of essential oils. So limonene is really interesting. So that is what we call a monoterpenoid. Um, so it is a, a 10 carbon isoprenoid. Um, and you can sort of break limonene biosynthesis down into two parts. So you have the pathway that's responsible for producing um, the precursor to limonene, which is called geronyl pyrophosphate. Um, so there's a whole, there are a couple different pathways that can be used to make geronyl pyrophosphate, and that's your main precursor. And that is what's acted on a final enzyme that actually um, produces limonene and takes GPP, that geronyl pyrophosphate, and turns into limonene. And that is an enzyme known as a terpene synthase or a terpene cyclase. Those terms are kind of used interchangeably. But those are the types of, of, of enzymes that I'm really interested in. And, you know, terpene cyclase chemistry is really interesting because a lot of times these enzymes are pretty promiscuous. So they will take, <laughs> yeah, isn't that funny? It's a funny word for it, but that's like what people call it. They essentially mm -hmm. can take one, one substrate, like one geronyl pyrophosphate molecule and actually turn it into a bunch of different terpenes. Because what's interesting about terpenes is they're 
diversity isn't necessarily diversity in like their um, chemical formula. It's all in the structure. It's all about how you connect those 10 carbons to each other. And um, terpene synthases can, you know, pump out like five or six different structures from the same starting material, um, which is super fascinating. Um, but yeah, there are certain synthases that primarily make one or two compounds and are very good at that. And then there are some that make a whole bunch of others. Um, so yeah, that, the terpene synthases are, are what I'm primarily interested in. I, so before I like run with my next question, there, I just, there was this thought that ran across my mind. I have never heard the word promiscuous used <laughs> to describe anything other than a proton in chemistry mm. because protons are, Protons are quote-unquote promiscuous. Um, that was like my favorite <laughs> phrase that I'd ever heard in my entire career of, of chemistry. Where I was just like, protons are promiscuous. And, and it's, it's really more for like exchangeable protons and, and acid-based chemistry is like the fastest right. um, reaction. But I, I find it fascinating. And I'm, I'm going to go back to my, my question that I was going to ask now is, I find it fascinating that, is it terpene synthase? Uh-huh, yeah. Terpene synthase and terpene cyclase are are used interchangeably so do i i'm presuming from the name terpene cyclase it's forming a ring mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. does terpene synthase do the same thing like yeah so as i mentioned you know the real um, diversity within terpenes is um, within the chemical structure. And a lot of that structure has to do with rings. So not all terpenes are cyclized, but most terpenes are cyclized. And especially once you get into larger terpenes that have 15 carbons or 20 carbons, you can have some really funky ring systems. So um, a lot of the, so the, the terpenes that I work with are sesquiterpenes, which have 15 carbons. And a lot of times you'll have um, sort of two um, cyclohexane rings attached to each other, and that will take up 12 of the carbons, and then you'll have a couple methyl groups or a gem dimethyl somewhere. Um, but you can also have the same sort of thing, but with a five-membered ring connected to a seven-member ring. Other times you can have mm. a entire, like a, just one full ring that's just really a large single ring structure. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so I think that's probably why cyclase and synthase are kind of interchangeable because in a lot of cases to become a terpene is to be cyclized. Um, not in every case, but in most cases, yeah. So Kayla, are you telling me that these enzymes loved terpene so much that they put a ring on it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is exactly what I'm telling you. That Oh my gosh, that's excellent. Right? Okay, so... I, I find cyclic systems so fascinating. I work with an organic polymer and a lot of the ring systems that we, that I am familiar with are, you know, aromatic systems. So benzene rings, mm -hmm. uh, but also indole rings. Mm -hmm. So it's like a five-membered ring with nitrogen. But what really caught my attention was when you said one very large ring. And the first thing that came to mind was like, are you talking about like a 20-membered ring? Like, is that... Part of me is like, I want that to be a thing, but another part of me is like, that can't be a thing. So is it is it actually a thing? So that's a great question. So I'm, I'm pulling up some structures right here. So there are, so humulene, H-U-M-U-L-E-N-E, -E, 
is a um, is a susquechirpine that is one large ring. So it looks like that is a 12-membered ring, if I have that right. Wait, let me count my carbons. One, two, three, four, 11-membered ring. Um, so that's humulene, yeah. And then karyophyllene, which is right next to it, it has a cyclopropane ring, which is attached to, it looks like a, oh, what is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine numbered ring. Yeah. So, so there's a very strained, tiny ring yeah. next to a large, a very ring. large ring oh my gosh that's so insane so so a, yeah. a small ring next to a swole ring got it okay. exactly um, yes. <laughs> yes, i love it that's so entertaining wow mm -hmm. and and this is this is are these just terpenes that just exist or do sponges make these so sponges don't at least there might be some sponges. My sponges don't make humulene and karyophyllene. Humulene and karyophyllene are both plant terpenoids. So, um, so plants make this. Plants make this. Yeah, plants are like the canonical terpene producers. Like most of what we understand about terpene biosynthesis comes from plants. Yeah. Goodness gravy. That's so mm -hmm. insane. That's so wild. Oh my gosh. Like, yeah. Oh. Nature, natural products are awesome. Nature is the ultimate chemist, you know? It's had billions oh, of yeah. years to I, figure out how to do that. Oh, yeah. I, uh, so much respect for, for natural products chemists. Like, I just, it blows my mind. Just like, how, how? Yeah. I don't, I just, <laughs> I don't even, I, I, eh. See, like that, those are all like that is as descriptive as I can be with like, I have like so much respect for y'all. Um, that's so cool. So, yeah. oh, wow. Okay. That is so wild. Oh, Kayla. So cool. <laughs> Thank you. Well, uh, it does, okay, it does look like we are nearing the end of our time, but not before I ask you the most anticipated question of this entire discussion. Uh-huh. Are you ready for it? I am absolutely ready. Okay. What is your favorite cake flavor and why? That is a great question. So I actually ate this cake this morning, funnily enough. Um, my favorite cake is red velvet cake with cream cheese frosting. Mm -hmm. And for many reasons. I mean, first of all, like you eat with your eyes first, right? And red mm -hmm. velvet is just so gorgeous. Like it's just mm -hmm. the most vibrant red color. Um, and also, I mean, it's like chocolate and cream cheese frosting. Like those are two of some of like the best flavors out there, in my mm -hmm. opinion. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, certain other flavors of cakes will sometimes come with cream cheese frosting. But red velvet will guarantee that you will always have cream cheese frosting on there. And that is really my kryptonite. So I think it's the combination of the chocolate and the cream cheese frosting and the beautiful color that just makes red velvet my favorite. Okay. That was a, that's a very, a very in-depth description and explanation of why what red velvet is your favorite for the listeners at home just in case this wasn't mentioned before cream cheese frosting is actually my favorite frosting ever especially when it is made properly um i i 
I love a good cream cheese frosting. Like if we could just put cream cheese frosting on everything, um, which may cause some controversy to those who are listening, but let it be known, cake loves cream cheese frosting. Um, yeah. Oh, wow. Especially when it's like not too dense, but not too like, what, what's it, what's it, not too like melted. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Not too too runny. Yeah. The texture has to be right. And the temperature. I feel like the temperature also has something to do with it. Absolutely. Incredible. Uh, such a great response. Well, Kayla, thank you so much for chatting with me today. It was such a delight to have you on the show. I've learned so much about your science and terpenes and isoprenoids and sea sponges. Um, yeah. To the folks listening at home, thank you so much for joining in on us uh, in this chat today. I hope you were able to learn something cool about sea sponges and, and terpenes and isoprenoids. Um, if you would like to follow the many aquatic adventures of Kayla Wilson, you can follow her on Twitter at science siren underscore, and you can follow her on TikTok and Instagram at science siren. And those will be linked in the description at uh, 19 out of 10 recommend her content folks. Um, and of course, if you would like to hop aboard the hype train, choo choo, you are always welcome to follow me on Twitter at Chemistry Cake. And if you would like to follow my shenanigans and general mischief, you are welcome to follow me on Instagram at Chemistry Cake as well. Alrighty, folks, this is your gentle reminder to stay hydrated, to keep the hype alive, and to edify our village. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This is Chemistry Cake signing off. <laughs>